Welcome back to another episode of the La Brea Purveya. I'm your purveyor, Pete Phillips. And this week, I learned that November 15th is the fall finale of La Brea. So we're coming up on a dry spell, but it's also getting really crazy before that. And because of election night, it seems that NBC is giving La Brea off next Tuesday. So I think we're going to slow down on the podcast a bit and focus on episode five, The Heist. It's not as exciting as six, but we will cover that next week. So you can get yourself amped up for that fall finale. Episode recap. Just as a reminder, we're coming into episode five off of the death of Aldridge. Aldridge had this plan to hijack the exiles, drive their black rock, the mysterious power source from the caves, into the Lazarus building, and then sneak up to the top floor to use the time-jumping portal to go back to 1988. Although with her, who knows where she intended to go. Gavin, Levi, Sam, and Eve decide that they are going to stick to the same plan, and that is the titular heist. Also, Ty is moving to Fort Town with Para. We love Ty, and I think this will be better for him. He'll have food, for one, and he'll have other people to rely on, rather than the obsessed-with-drama Harris family. But before he leaves, he gives Eve something to think about, which we're all screaming at our TVs. But Ty is more chill about it. He says, you're going to have to make a choice. Is she going to take Gavin or Levi? And honestly, just pick one. It genuinely doesn't matter to us. The grass is greener syndrome, aka FOMO, is the idea that there is always something better that we are missing. So rather than experiencing stability, security, and satisfaction in the present environment, one can feel that there is better somewhere else, and anything less than ideal won't do. The problem is the greener grass is usually based on fantasy and fear. The fear comes from several possibilities, including the fear of being trapped in commitment, fear of boredom, fear of loss of individuality, and fear of oppression. This is where the element of fantasy comes in. We're going to want what we don't have, and there's a fantasy that we'll get what we don't have and the parts that we currently have and are happy with won't be sacrificed in the change. This is where projection comes in. When the grass is greener on the other side, we usually, if not always, are placing personal unhappiness with ourselves onto something outside of us. We rely on polishing our external environment to soothe a deeper internal dissatisfaction. Though the environment changes when jumping the fence, the dissatisfaction eventually becomes the same. And we have gotten a peek into that, right? Eve is sort of dissatisfied with herself and her infidelity, but if it were just that simple, then she would go back to Gavin. But instead of deciding, Eve tells Ty goodbye and joins Gavin to tell Izzy about what they're going to do. Both parents will go into a building and go back in time to get Josh and not think at all about how they would get back to 10,000 BC or their daughter. Izzy, using her brain, says that she should go with them so that they can stay together as a family. Uh, duh, obviously. Scott and Lucas go too. As everyone marches through the woods, we get a small peek at Scott having a backstory about his anxiety. His brother drowned when they were both young, and Scott was too paralyzed with fear to do anything to help him. But he could stay afloat. This comes out as he explains to Lucas why he's so scared and anxious all the time. Why he depends on the vape so much. Lucas basically tells Scott to get over it. And that's the best diagnosis for anxiety, after all. Wait, what? Gavin professes his love to Eve, and things start to sound troubling when he says... I know you love me. Because love can mean a lot of things, right? Luckily, Eve doesn't have to dwell on things too much because Virgil comes out of nowhere. He's okay. He escaped the exiles. 
He reports that they are closing the cave because there's not enough black rock anymore. So they're taking the prisoners somewhere else. And there's a good chance that the prisoners won't really thrive during this journey. So the Clearing Clan take Virgil back to pretty much the only place he doesn't want to go, the cave. Back in 1988, or ahead in 1988? Eh, in 1988, Carolyn or Caroline. Carolyn and Caroline. They got to think about that, man. Hi, Carolyn. It's Caroline. I'm not trying to be cute here. I swear they say her name two different ways, depending on who's talking. But anyway, once she believes that Gavin Zaya is her son, she starts to explain a bit more. Your father wasn't born in 10,000 BC. He was born in the future. Time out, you're from the future? We went to 10,000 BC as part of an experiment. We were trying to save our world, but we ended up doing more harm than good. That's why I came to 1988. I'm, I'm trying to fix those mistakes. Like the sinkholes and the tidal wave. It's a lot to explain, but our work caused that to happen. The first theoretical experiments in time travel started in the 80s. I needed that data to complete my work. Once I'm finished, I'm going to take it back to 10,000 BC and stop these sinkholes once and for all. What in the hell? So Clark wants to go after Isaiah and take him in as her son. She lost him in the past, and it just happens to be that she and him are in the same space and time. Josh explains, If you do anything to stop Isaiah from getting adopted and growing up to become Gavin Harris, I'll basically cease to exist. Would that be so bad? She basically says, fine, I won't go looking for Isaiah. But she does need to step away so that she can get some unexpectedly important research from her office. And Josh trusts his reliably untrustworthy family, so he doesn't think for a second that she's going to Child Protective Services to meet Isaiah. In 10,000 BC, the Harris family is joined by Sam as they try to get to the caves to get to the wagon that has the black rock that's going to the Lazarus building. They gave Scott, Lucas, and Levi orders to help the prisoners. Levi uses this opportunity to go to Paras and try to get some reinforcements, which leaves Lucas and Scott to handle the exiles all by themselves. It should be easy, except Scott finally ran out of weed, and so his anxiety is heightened. For the Harrises and Sam, everything is smooth sailing for about two minutes. Then, they fall into a dark hole and can't see anything. A trap set by the exiles. But once they get some light, it's great, because they're completely surrounded by spiders. And it turns out that Izzy is scared of spiders. Like, so much. Oh my god, I am freaking out! I am totally freaking out! Which ups the ante quite a bit. There's a pattern growing with these boss battles in episodes of La Brea. In video games, a boss is a significant opponent. A fight with a boss character is commonly referred to as a boss battle or boss fight. Bosses are generally far stronger than other opponents the player has faced up to this point. Boss battles are generally seen at climax points of particular sections of games, such as the end of a level. A mini-boss is a boss who is weaker or less significant than the main boss in the same area or level, though usually more powerful than the standard opponents and often fought alongside them. Final boss is often the main antagonist of the game, and the defeat of that character usually provides a positive conclusion to the game. So tension mounts as they look for a way out of this dark hole that they're stuck in. Kind of ironic that they're stuck in a hole, right? Anyway, the solution is, strangely, busting a hole in the wall and entering the caves. It seems that some of the prisoners accidentally dug a little too close to the wall that is shared with the spider hole. 
Once they're in the caves, they sneak up on and knock out some guards and put on their clothes. Then they pose as the appropriate Black Rock delivery persons and go to the wagon. Scott and Lucas don't have time to wait for Levi to return with reinforcements. They need to act now, and so they do. Lucas causes a distraction that takes the exiles away, and then Scott burns a boat that was going to be used to transport some of the prisoners. Just as it looks like Lucas and Scott are going to face the consequences of saving innocent people, Bara and company show up, and they start kicking butts. Scott kind of saved the day, and he throws his vape pen away, because that's all you have to do. You just burn a boat down to kick anxiety for good. But back at the cave, Sam and the Harrises are coming up on Tamit, who, who needs to finalize the shipment. He stares at the four of them for a nice, long time that will pad television. And then he lets them through. As they roll away with the Black Rock, feeling elated from their success, the original guards that were in the cave come out. Sadly, not in funny boxers with, like, hearts on them, like in the cartoons. And then Tamit sends five guys to chase down the wagon, for some reason on foot. When they catch up, everyone engages in hand-to-hand combat. Combat rules! The Harrises should totally lose, but they don't, and that's probably because we have to advance the plot. In fact, part of the reason why they win is because Levi shows up with Para, Lucas, Ty, and Scott. And Levi is the one who stops Eve from being choked to death by one of the guards. Tamit manages to flee, but when faced with the chance to shoot him with an arrow, Para lets him escape. It turns out that he is her ex-husband. But kind of not ex, like, <laughs> exile husband? That's pretty funny. When he deserted the fort after a rebellion, she kind of wrote him off because he went against everything that the community stood for. So now we know that the exiles came from Para's people, which they sometimes call the Tongve. It doesn't really explain why they have so much metal. It really does seem like they come from a different time, but we don't need to get bogged down by that. Para also points out that they won't forget this incident, and they probably will seek vengeance. But Gavin doesn't really care, because by the time they catch up, he'll be back in time anyway. Sucks to be you! After realizing Caroline's big sleight of hand, Josh and Riley track her down, and they find her with Isaiah. It's not what you think, though. She offers a tearful goodbye to her son, who doesn't know that he is her son, and he gives her over to the Harrises, her colleagues. When Josh told her that his last name is Harris, she knew they were the parents that she should hook him up with. Don't think about that too much. We'll talk about that in the next segment. Let's not have another chicken or the egg debate. At the end of the episode, they finally hit the Lazarus building. Remember that the Harrises haven't seen this before, so it's a really big deal for them. Ooh, something shiny. What just happened? By this point, you know my interest in this show enough that I'm going to have to say, what happened to Franklin Marsh? Caroline Clark shows up and suddenly Franklin is nobody. He's like not important at all. He managed to charge a phone in 1988. So he seems like a pretty valuable guy, at least clever and honestly more entertaining than Caroline. That's a very good question. Speaking of which, Marsh is the one who set Riley and Josh on Caroline's trail because of this line that he said. We need to show this to the head of my geology department at Caltech, Dr. Caroline Clark. She's well-renowned in the field. When did she have time to become renowned in the field in 1988? She showed up in 1988 to work on the time travel stuff because of the research and all that sort of stuff that we heard in the clip. 
and she looks like she could be in her late 20s, early 30s. So she had a baby while she was developing time travel and went back to 10,000 BC, then forward, maybe? And then back to 1988, where she had enough time to become renowned in the field of geology, but is researching time travel privately. It would be pretty tight, but I guess that all of this could happen, right? That's a very good question. So Tamit and Para, huh? That was unexpected. How did Gavin Zaya not remember that development? He remembered Tamit and he remembered Para. Why didn't he remember the two of them together? I'm sure it would have been choice gossip around the Fort Water Cooler. How does divorce work in 10,000 BC? Is it just like pairing and then unpairing? Connect to Bluetooth. Or is there some bond that's still there and Ty is going to be in a heap of a romantic mess between these two exes? That's a very good question. And okay, we can hint at the whole timeline rules thing now. So Josh meets Caroline, tells her that his last name is Harris. She matches Gavin Zaya up with the Harrises. He grows up, has Josh Harris, who wouldn't have had that last name unless he had met his grandmother in 1988 and tipped her off that his last name is Harris so that she could match Gavin Zaya with the Harrises, where he grows up to have a son named Josh Harris who meets his grandmother in 1988. I wonder what Gavin Zaya's last name was before they traveled back in time. This is where some of these time travel rules really need to be laid out so that I'm not confused. That's a very good question. Another thing worth noting, Caroline, part of the untrustworthy Harris legacy, says that the Harrises of 1988 are her colleagues. Is anybody else suspicious about that? Are they geologists? Are they time wizards of some sort? That's a very good question. Digging deeper. I never bothered digging into Gavin before because, although he is a central character, he's kind of one-dimensional. He has a single want, and he wants it more than anything, even his own safety. He wants to get his family together and live as one unit. Prior to the sinkhole, this seemed to not be as obvious to him, so the whole thing has really played in his favor. In terms of a background, I suppose, he is a former pilot who has visions out of nowhere, which makes it impossible for him to fly again. So when we meet him in the show, he's trying to find work in the flying field, but not actually piloting. Then there's a sinkhole that eats his wife and son and leaves him with his daughter and his elusive sister. Pre-hole, he wanted a job. Post-hole, he wanted his family. Pre-hole, he might have wanted the job so he could get his family back anyway. So we can count that, I guess, as a consistent need. So then also in season one, he sets out to try to find his wife and son in the hole, not really caring if his daughter is left behind in 2021. But eventually, he and his daughter both jump into a hole where he discovered that his visions were of his childhood, and he was once a little blonde boy with an obsessive grandfather. Isaiah, also Gavin, was that boy, who grew up in 10,000 BC, then traveled to 1988, where we can pick up the rest of the story of his life, which we kind of know. He meets Eve, he has babies, he has visions, he loses his job, he loves his booze, and his old pal Levi, who he suggested go back to 10,000 BC to save his wife and kid, was also sleeping with his wife, and now he is there trying to win his wife back from the man he sent back to save her, but the issue is more that he wants to win her back, probably from his past, right? His motivation for every single decision he makes is getting his family back together, whether they want to be or not. And this is the episode where he explicitly says, Look, I know what I've weak through. 
okay? And I know it's Listen, my fault that things fell apart, and I wish I could take everything back. I can't. I'm not going to give up on the two of us, okay? I love you. And I know you still love me. I'm not asking you to make a choice. Not today, at least. I know everything's uncertain right now, but what I do know is that my life is nothing without you. No matter what happens, I'm going to do whatever I have to win you back. Now, if you're nicer than me, you didn't immediately jump to him murdering Levi so that he could get Eve back. But it is on the table. Everything is on the table when we're talking about La Brea. What would drive him when he has his family back together? Or does he thrive in crisis and flounder in times of calm? Ian Mackin plays Gavin as well as he can, I suppose. He previously starred in The Night Shift from NBC as the leading man. He's got a very long list of credits, so he is an established professional for sure. His IMDb trivia says that he is skilled in swimming, horseback riding, golf, soccer, athletics, climbing, surfing, sailing, and kickboxing, which makes him a great fit for the character of Gavin, because they're like always golfing in 10,000 BC. That list is also kind of funny, because when they throw in athletics, it kind of implies that horseback riding, golf, soccer, all those other things are not athletics. But I digress. He comes from Dublin, Ireland, and in 2008, he was the face of the Braun campaign. So that beard has been drawing attention for quite some time. He also has a movie coming out called Grey Elephant, which he wrote, directed, and starred in. In the media reviews. Over at TVFanatic.com, Paul Daly is reporting. In the article NBC Cheat Sheet, La Brea and Quantum Leap are on the bubble. We hate to hear that. None of NBC's shows are performing terribly during the 22-23 TV season. That can change as we head into early 2023. There have been reports that NBC is mulling over, handing its 10 p.m. slot back to affiliates, meaning that there could be fewer shows on the network overall next season. In this case, newer entries like Quantum Leap and La Brea would probably get the chop. La Brea lost considerable steam this season. It is averaging 3.6 million viewers in a .36 rating. I don't know what the ratings mean, guys. I'm sorry. It could be in some serious danger if NBC hands over the 10 p.m. slot back to affiliates. But if you'll allow me to editorialize, La Brea found much more success on streaming, although it's not on Hulu anymore, and so I wonder how that will hold up. This whole thing about handing back the 10 o'clock hour to local affiliates has been talked about since about August. Under their proposal, which was first reported Friday by the Wall Street Journal, NBC's 200-plus local affiliate stations would take over control of programming the 10 o'clock hour each night and collect all of the ad revenue during that time. While NBC owns 12 local stations, including top markets like New York City, LA, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., the vast majority are owned by multiple companies. According to the Wall Street Journal, the idea is still in discussions and has not been officially raised with the company's affiliate board. I guess what I'm saying to you, listener, is that we need to keep hyping La Brea and spreading the word so that the show stays on the air, even if it's only on Peacock. And that call to action will round out this episode of the La Brea Purveya. Don't forget to subscribe, post about the show wherever, but more importantly, if you would like to contribute to the show in any way whatsoever, whether it be comments, questions, etc., you can email shout at yallheard.me. 
which is the email address of our parent podcast, Y'all Heard. And I will be happy to field those messages and bring them to listeners on the air. Thanks so much for listening. Next podcast episode, I'm going to cover La Brea episode six so that you will be in the perfect position to enjoy that fall finale on November 15th. Until then, enjoy yourself and don't fall in any sinkholes. (laughs) 